Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. As you find your seats, you can begin to prepare your hearts because this morning we are in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Now we've been following the ministry of Peter going back two weeks now. And as we've been talking about Peter, we realized that God was working in Peter's life as much as he was working through Peter's life. And I want to challenge you this morning because I think one of the things you're going to find as a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for decades or maybe just for days, you're going to find that God equally works both in and through our lives. And sometimes it's the work that he does in our lives and in our hearts that is the most challenging. Because many times we're challenged to think differently. Never differently than what the Word of God teaches. Never differently than the truth of God's Word or the leading of His Spirit, but differently than perhaps we've been raised, taught, or conditioned. Now, one of the things I've seen very clearly in my own life is that I, like all of you, have certain groups of people that I feel more comfortable with, and others that I perhaps am challenged to relate to. Now, clearly there there are things that are evil and wrong, such as racism, but more than likely a lot of our apprehension about spending time with people who are different than us has less to do with their skin color or their language and more to do with just not generally understanding who they are and where they come from. And I found that as a Christian, I am part of a group of people that sort of understand each other. See, as Christians, we understand that God loves us. Amen? We understand that the Father sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. Amen? We understand that he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts by faith and to pour out his love into our hearts and through our lives. Amen? But there's a world out there of people, some who even attend church, who don't understand those things and many more things that you and I take for granted. So one of the things that I've been doing over the last nine months or so now is I've been spending more and more time with people who don't understand those things. It was my heart to get involved in something outside of the church so that I would be able to reach people outside the church. And so a lot of our time, especially as ministers and myself, you know, I've been a full-time pastor since 2006. So much of my time is spent around people that I understand and who understand me. We have the same values and and a general understanding of the things of God. And infrequently do I find myself speaking to people that don't understand those things. Now, I worked in the corporate world for 20 years, and I was spoiled because during those 20 years, I spent a majority of my time around people that were very different than me or didn't understand God and his word the way that I do. But now these past many years, I'm finding that I need to put myself in a place where God can use me and not only just work in me, but through me. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would just take our hearts. We offer them to you. We desire to be the people that you can use. 
And for Peter and the apostles in the first century, pretty much everyone they came in contact with was someone who didn't understand the things of God, not properly. And Lord, perhaps we're spoiled as Christians to surround ourselves with wonderful friends and family and church family who who get it, who understand us and can encourage us in our faith. But Lord, may you open up the doors of opportunity to each and every one of us with our families, with our co-workers, with our neighbors, with our friends, with those in our peer groups, in school and other places, to be able to really truly share the truth of the gospel, not only in words, but by our lives. And Lord, as you challenge us to go out, and as we feel uncomfortable, and as we're stretched beyond measure and beyond our comfort zone, may you strengthen us and empower us and show us that you are doing a work not only through us, but in us as well. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This morning we find ourselves in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. And much of this reads as a narrative. There's not that much to explain. But what I'd like to do is read through portions of this and make application as to how it affects us in the ways that I've outlined as we've begun this study this morning. Let's start by looking at verses 1 through 8. Now, this whole section is all about Peter being called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in a place called Caesarea. Now, to put it in perspective, Gentiles were clearly outside the people of God. They were, the Jews didn't really have any associations with Gentiles, and if they had to, they were very uncomfortable and brief. These were not a group of people that anyone at this point within the church really thought of reaching with the gospel. The gospel had made its way to Samaria, but Samaria was filled with people who had a Jewish lineage And though they were a little confused about the truth of God's word, they did understand God. They did have a knowledge of God. They were of Jewish heritage. Though they had mixed blood with other peoples, they were, in a sense, of Jewish origin. There was an Ethiopian eunuch who was a worshiper of God. He was a Jew, though he himself was not a Jew by birth, let's say. He was a Jew by choice. So all of the people who have been reached at this point are people who are clearly within that lane, and even the Samaritans was a stretch. But all of the people are in that lane of, yeah, we kind of understand why they would want to know God and know more about his word. But now we're going to see the Holy Spirit is going to reach out above and beyond the comfort zone of the apostles, so much so that the action Peter's about to take as led by the Spirit will result in a conference in Jerusalem discussing the appropriateness of what he did. And we'll get to that. But for now, let's see what God did and what God wanted to do in the life of Peter. In verses 1 through 8 in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, we read that at Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. And he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. And the angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. 
Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. This is the first step, and it's a step that God takes by sending an angel. God takes a step toward the unlikable, the unlovable. God takes a step in the direction of reaching those who were uncomfortable to speak to. Now, you'll find that God always takes the first step. We're just not that good, are we? We're never going to really take that step of our own volition. We're going to have to be uh, guided, directed, instructed to step outside our comfort zones and to do the work of God. So God will have to do a work in us first, and we'll see that God is about to do a work in Peter. But the first thing that happens is God reaches out to a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, and I can't stress at this point in the early church how significant that word is, a Gentile. You might want to take a moment and think of a group of people, politically or whatever group of people that might make you feel the most uncomfortable. And that's different for all of us. And I'm not saying you may have a hate in your heart toward them. I think if we're honest with ourselves, some of us are uncomfortable in the inner city and some of us are uncomfortable in the suburbs. And some of us are uncomfortable among people who think differently than we do, politically. Some of us are uncomfortable with certain types of people. But all of us are uncomfortable with some people. There's got to be some group of people that you find yourself a little unsure of relating to. I can remember when I first started working at my job. I I grew up in a working-class family in a working-class neighborhood. And I was suddenly in a very corporate environment in a Fortune 200 company. And I found myself very apprehensive about anyone finding out who I really was. That I didn't say yes, I said yeah. A couple times I caught myself and people looked at me like, who is that guy? I had to literally change my diction. I had to change the way I spoke. As opposed to change the way I talked. Now, every once in a while, you know, I, I kind of gray back into that way of thinking or the way of speaking because it's natural to me, and I'm not ashamed of it. And at times, it's actually helpful in effectively communicating. But I did have to learn that the people that I was around were different than me, and relating to them required me to relate to them differently. And it was an adjustment. And over my life's story, I found that many times God will place me among people so different than me that I actually find myself feeling a little awkward or, I, or maybe a little uncomfortable. Even this last weekend, some of you know I was away. I was training this weekend. I went away for a martial arts uh, camp, and it was a karate weekend. And uh, there, as far as I can tell, there really weren't any Christians there. And, you know, it was a little different and a little awkward and a little uncomfortable at times, not because the people weren't nice and not because they weren't very welcoming, but because they were not like me. Some of them were from different parts of the country. And and some of them, I imagine many of them, most of them don't even go to church. Wonderful people, but they have a different lifestyle. They, they, They act differently. They live differently than me. That was glaringly apparent at the first meeting. 
And I realize and I know that part of the reason that I'm involved in this is because I want to be in an environment where I can reach people outside my comfort zone, outside the church. It's a big part of why I made the decision and the commitment to study martial arts. It's a a major part of why. Not the only part, but a major part. So for four days, I found myself around people that eat differently than me, drink differently than me, that act differently than me. And at no point was I upset or offended, but I was definitely out of my comfort zone. And what I realized is God has to do a work in me in order to work through me. And clearly, Peter is in a situation where there has to be a work of God in his heart. But this man, Cornelius, this man who is a Gentile, God-fearing Gentile, but still a Gentile, outside the family of God, would not have really been welcomed among the Jewish culture or even the church. This man was spoken to by God. When's the last time God spoke to you? In this way. I've never had an experience quite like this. Cornelius, a a Gentile centurion, receives a vision from God, a vision of an angel. I mean, Cornelius was stationed at Caesarea, and he's a member of this group of soldiers called the Italian Regiment. Sometimes it says the Italian Band, but the Italian Regiment. I was actually in an Italian band, but that was a wedding band. But Caesarea was 70 miles northwest of Jerusalem on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It was the capital of the Roman province of Judea. It's the seat of governors and procurators. It is a very Roman place, very Gentile place. It had a spacious harbor. It was the headquarters of all the Roman troops in all of Palestine. Are you starting to see why this might be a little uncomfortable for Peter and others? Well, you see... He's not there yet. He's in Joppa. He's in a different place right now, Peter, that is. But Cornelius is in a place that I don't think most people would have decided to go. Not Christians and not Jews, unless they had to or they were called to. Now, let's talk about what it means to be a centurion. A centurion is much like a captain in the military, uh, not the captain in the Navy, but a captain in, uh, let's say, the Army or the Marines. A centurion was a professional officer of the Roman army, commanded about 80 to 100 men. And they often suffered heavy casualties in battle as they fought alongside their legionnaires. These were brave men. Every centurion mentioned in the New Testament, by the way, every centurion is mentioned with honor. And what does that say? It was an honorable position. And even though they were Gentiles, these centurions were respected. Now, the Italian regiment specifically consisted of men from Italy who had volunteered to serve. They were volunteers. They were not conscripted. They were not servants. They had volunteered to serve. Caesarea may have also been the home of saints. There may have been people in this city where uh, the centurion lived, but at this point, we don't really have a sense that much was happening spiritually, not among the Gentiles, perhaps among the Jews. We know that many saints had fled persecution from Jerusalem. Uh, There was persecution in Jerusalem. They fled there. And they found their way to places like Caesarea. In fact, Philip, we talked about this, he helped build up the church in Caesarea, and he ultimately had a house in the city. So Philip was ministering there, but again, not among the Gentiles, not yet. No one had taken that bold step to do so. Now, Cornelius and his entire family feared God, 
That's a good step. Let me say this. It is very hard to reach a person outside the church, outside the family of God, who doesn't at least fear God. It's not impossible, but let's say that the starting point for reaching someone outside your comfort zone starts with a respect for God. And that's what we're told. This man and his family had a respect for God. Were they members of the synagogue? Had they converted to Judaism? No, but they had a respect, a healthy respect for God. So, this group of people are people that are living, you could go so far as to say, living like Christians in many ways, but not Christians. Living like Jews in some ways, but not Jews. God-fearing individuals. And I want to challenge you, there are many people out there that are, in fact, respectful of what we believe. And those are people that we can reach. There are certain groups of people in the world who will listen to what you have to say, that will honor what you believe. I know it doesn't seem like it, because the loudest voices are those that despise us in what we believe. But I can tell you from personal experience, not only in martial arts and over this last weekend, I can tell you there are many, many people in the world outside our church, outside Christianity, who will listen to what you have to say if you say it with love, if you tell them the truth. And we need to be in that place where we can share that. And I feel that more than ever in this world, people who actually do respect God but may not have a relationship with God are are quiet about it because so much of the world is telling them to shut up and mocking them. But when you and I, when we come to a person who actually wants to know God or respects God or wants to perhaps experience or explore a relationship with God, we are a breath of fresh air to a person who's been silent about those yearnings. So we have tremendous opportunity, but it, it is true. It starts with that individual having respect for God. That may be all they need. Because let's be honest, if they hate God and hate his people, that's a more difficult conversation. So let's just say that first we start with a family of people who respected and honored God. We're told they were devoted to worshiping God. What does that mean? I'm sure not the way we worship. I'm sure that it didn't follow the ABCs of Christianity of that time either. But they were extremely generous in providing for those that were in need. And they prayed to the Lord regularly. You think that God is big enough to see past some of the minutiae associated with individuals who respect God, worshiping God? You think that you have to worship God the way that we worship God in order to come to God? You don't. God will come to you. And that's what we're seeing. Please understand, God comes to those that want to know him. It isn't your, your, your commitment to orthodoxy and doctrine and Christian practice that opens up the doors of God's grace. God's grace is open and available. He is yearning to reach out to people who are just willing to be reached out to. And that is loud and clear in this text. This man was a righteous, God-fearing man. He was respected by all the Jewish people. How do I know that? Verse 22 of this chapter tells me that. And Jesus, remember, he encountered a noble centurion and other devout Gentiles in his ministry throughout the Gospels. So this is not unprecedented. But Cornelius received a vision. A vision from the Lord while he was praying. 
By the way, if you're going to receive a vision, it's probably going to come about through prayer. Now, was he praying the Lord's Prayer? Probably not. Was he praying some Jewish prayer? Most likely not. But he was reaching out to God. Maybe his prayer was a simple, God, I know you're out there. I don't know who you are. I don't know anything about you, but I want to. Maybe that was it. I don't know. Perhaps it was a simple prayer. I've spoken to people that are so sure that there's a God that don't know him. Even recently, they're so sure that God exists. They're not atheists. They may be a little agnostic, but more than anything, they just don't know the truth. But they want to. How encouraging that is. I mean, these are the people you want to spend your time reaching, right? I mean, do you really want to spend your time going against people who wear black masks and go out into the street and beat up Christians with baseball bats? Because that may not be all that useful. That may not be effective. But I know what is effective. This is effective. Reaching out to those that God is reaching out to. And that's what's happening here. Let's let's look at what it says here. It says that he was praying about 3 p.m. Now the Jews, the Jews prayed at the temple in Jerusalem each day at 3. He wouldn't have been welcomed in the temple, perhaps not even in the synagogue. But he knew, well, they pray at 3. Oh, it's kind of like kids pick up on it. Like we pray, we fold our hands. What do they do? They fold our hands. We close our eyes. What do they do? They close their eyes. Sometimes they open them. So watch it. Parents may need to keep one eye open. But people in the world, they see us, they see what we do, and they think, well, I noticed when that guy prayed, he closed his hands. I noticed he he closed his eyes. I I noticed they they always seem to say amen at the end of their prayer. This is how people learn. By watching, by experiencing your relationship with God, they grow in a relationship with God or come to find that they can have a relationship with God. So he sees the Jews, they're praying at 3 p.m. He prays at 3 p.m. And then an angel appears to him in a vision, calls him by name. That's pretty awesome. He was afraid. You would be too. But he responded by submitting to the angel, asking him what he wanted. You know, what do you want? And the angel commended him for his faithfulness. What? But he didn't even join a church. He may not even really be a Christian yet. And the angel of the Lord is commending him for his faithfulness? Why does that happen? I'm going to tell you a little secret about God's love. And it's not really a secret at all. God is looking for excuses to love you. Don't take that as a theological statement. Take it as a relational comment. He's not looking for reasons not to love you. He's looking for excuses to love you. By that I mean he loves you. That's all I mean. I say it that way so you'll understand. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing all of us. And when we see God like that, it makes sense why the angel came and commended him for his faithfulness. Eh, His faithfulness in prayer. He was faithful in prayer. And giving to the poor. He was giving to the poor, after all. And then the angel directed him to send messengers to Joppa, where Peter is currently, uh, to bring Peter to Caesarea. Bring Peter to Caesarea. Why? Maybe Peter would not have gone to Caesarea otherwise. He told them that the man was named Simon, but he's called Peter. And he told them that he was staying with a man named Simon, who's the Simon the Tanner. And he lived by the sea. Now, this is interesting because you may not know this. A tanner is not a person that opens up a spa where people go into those little booths. 
They don't want to go to the beach, but they want to look like they went to the beach, so they go to a tanner. No, 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 it's not a tanning salon. A tanner cures the skins of animals using vats of foul-smelling liquids. And I say that because tanneries required proper ventilation. So, they also required salt water. So where would you put a tanner? Where would you put a tannery? By the ocean, by the sea. So they needed the salt water for the washing of the skins, proper ventilation for these foul-smelling liquids, and that's where Peter is staying. In fact, truth be known, most Jews would not have stayed with Simon the Tanner. Because animal skins, it's kind of stretching the lines of what's kosher, you know. It's, it's, it's maybe not violating the law, but mm, it, it's definitely not the kind of place you would want to stay. You wouldn't call this place up as an Airbnb and say, oh, my family and I would like to stay on the seashore, and the tannery sounds just fine. Would not happen. So the angel told them, that Peter would bring a message of salvation. I know that because when we get to chapter 11, verse 14, Peter tells us, the angel had told this man, excuse me, Peter's going to come, and he's going to bring a message of salvation. Why is that important? You don't bring a message of salvation to someone who's already saved. Think about that. This man, as far as I can tell, was not saved. And God is pursuing him. God is pursuing him, looking for an opportunity to reveal his love to him. If you don't see that as the heart of Jesus Christ, you've missed the entire message of Scripture. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The great work of the gospel is sharing it with those who haven't received it yet. We can't get too comfortable on just sitting around having a daily feast or perhaps weekly feast of Bible study. It is wonderful to praise the Lord with all of you on Sundays and Wednesdays and other opportunities we have. I wouldn't give give it up for anything. But this last Sunday, I wasn't here. And you know what happens when you are not here? You miss what you have. But my reason for not being here was so that I could be there. And when you're there, you have opportunity to reach those that don't have what we have. So I'm sharing with you my heart, but I'm sharing with you the heart of God. And I'm sharing with you the scripture so you'll understand what God was doing in the life of Peter and about to do in the life of Peter. So there was a message of salvation that Peter had, and Cornelius and his family needed it. So Cornelius informed two servants and an attendant and sent them to Joppa to bring Peter to Caesarea. He sent servants to relay the message and invite Peter to come into his house, which is a stretch for a Jew. But he sent the soldier, who was also devoted to the Lord, we're told he was, to protect his servants. So he sends them on their way, and we find out that God was working in Peter's life as well, or about to. Look at verse 9. In verses 9 through 20, I want to read that whole section. We read that about noon the following day. So you see how Peter wasn't in the loop until the next day? See, God was already working in the life of Cornelius and his family. God was already working. God was already planning. God was already strategizing. God was about to reach this family, and Peter didn't even know it yet. There's a lot of things that God wants to do in and through your life that you have no clue are about to happen. Look what happens. 
About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet, that word could also be translated sail, He saw something like a large sheet or sail being let down to earth by its four corners, contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. Peter had a habit of saying no, Lord. Have you noticed that? When you say Lord, it's saying, you know, you submit to him. No, Lord is kind of an oxymoron. And Peter's probably being one right now. So here's the thing. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. That's a powerful statement. That God has made clean. There are things in this world that are unclean. But don't call anything unclean or impure that God has made clean. God can make people clean. You know, there's something that's wonderful about this truth of God making someone or something clean. It's his prerogative. It's his power. It's his presence. It's his doing. It's it's not you. It's not me. We don't step up and say, well, I got to clean this guy up for God. I got to clean her up for God. No, God will clean him or her up. And the work he's doing now in the life of Cornelius, it seems to me it's been a work that's been ongoing. And this man, we're going to find out, is cleaner than Peter realized. But let's move on. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. Hold on to that number for a minute. It happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision... The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. Why do you think they stopped there? They weren't welcomed in the house. They stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, the Spirit spoke to Peter and said to him, Simon, three men were looking for you. So get up and go downstairs and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Don't hesitate. I know you have a hesitation, but don't hesitate to go with them. For I have sent them. Now Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? You notice that Peter doesn't really have a clue. Many times you and I, we're not going to have a clue what God is doing. Just do what God told you to do, right? It's that idea of do the last thing he told you to do. Till he tells you to do something different. God is working in ways completely undiscovered by you. You have no clue, and neither do I. It's amazing to me how God works. Oh, so often in ways that I have no understanding. But don't hesitate to go with them, the Spirit says, for I have sent them. I'm in this. I'm the one working here. Peter went down, as I said, I'm the one you're looking for. Now notice he said, why have you come? But then the men replied, 
We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man. Why do they feel the need to say that? He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. All right. Wow. This is big. For Peter, this is huge. What God is doing, it, it really kind of exceeds Peter's behavior up till this point. I can pretty much tell you based on his response that he had never eaten anything unclean, but that he had also never invited a Gentile into his home. I can tell you based on what's said here that he is not real comfortable. But what's he going to do? Defy God? Well, he started with surely not, Lord. That didn't work out real well for Peter in his life. Remember, get behind me, Satan. Remember that? That was the response to no, Lord. So I think what's happening here is Peter's being reminded of the many, many times that he failed to see that God was working. How do I know that? Well, let's look a little bit more closely at the text. Peter receives a vision from the Lord as well. And this is happening while the messengers that were sent from Cornelius were on their way. He received a vision of the Lord while he was praying at about 12 p.m. or noon the next day. Now, Jews often prayed throughout the day and frequently outside on the roof when they could. It was a quiet place. Now, he became hungry. They hadn't had lunch yet, so he became hungry as the midday meal was being prepared. He falls into a trance. I feel like that sometimes when I'm hungry, but this was a spiritual thing. He saw a vision of a large sheet or sail, and it's interesting that the word for sail would be used because he is at the coast. He is on the seashore. But this is let down. This sail is let down from heaven to earth, and it's let down by its four corners. And as it opens up, The sheet contained all kinds of unclean animals, reptiles, and birds. And his first thought, and your first thought, is probably not, mmm, lunch. But he's hungry, and it's as if God is saying, well, he does does say it. Arise, kill, and eat. You hungry? Eat. Now, this was offensive to Peter. These were all unclean animals. He hears this voice direct him to get up, kill, and eat those unclean creatures to satisfy his hunger. You hungry? Eat this, Peter. He was disgusted. That's the only word that accurately describes how Peter's feeling. He's disgusted. Have you ever been offered food that you thought looked good until you found out what it was? It's very tough to recover from that. Oh, that looks good. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, chicken hearts or... I'm not even going to go any further than that. The next thing I was about to say would be grossly offensive. But you remember Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, right? Chewed monkey brains, you know. Something that really just would gross you out. So, so if you've ever had that experience to be offered some food or something that you just, I am not eating that. And then you kind of fake it. You know, mm, you know but you don't really eat it. Well, that's just me anyway. He was disgusted. He refused to eat anything impure or unclean, in keeping with the Jewish law. And he was right to say it in a way, except that God is telling him something different than he's been taught. What's this all about? You see, we have a New Testament. God's doing a new thing. Now, I'm not suggesting God is going to 
coax you or encourage you or instruct you to do something that violate God's word. But Peter's being told, you need to think differently about this food because I want you to think differently about a lot of things and it starts with this. See, if you're going to go into a Gentile's home, you have to be willing to eat their food. You understand that, right? And that's exactly what Peter is going to be called to do. So it starts with this. He refused to eat anything impure or unclean. Now, he hears the voice, rebuke him. Oh, Peter is so familiar with rebuke. And so are you, if you're honest. So familiar with being rebuked. And he's rebuked for calling anything impure that God has made clean. See, God makes things clean. See, there are things in this world that are unclean, but if God says it's clean, it's clean. Every time I hear the word clean, I think of my Italian grandmother. Because she knew and really understood the meaning of clean. She cleaned every day. A particle of dust never found its way into that house. We had a shore house. I never found a grain of sand on the floor. But even my grandma couldn't keep the house as clean as God wants to clean you. You and I need to understand God wants to clean us up. But you know something? It's not effort on his part. It's a sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit that's done immediately, powerfully, and effectively. That's how God cleans us up. He saw this vision repeated three times. That's very interesting to me. But he still refused to eat anything impure and clean. He's still pushing back. I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm not doing it, I tell you. This is significant because Peter had denied the Lord how many times? Remember when Jesus had restored Peter? He asked him, do you love me? How many times? Peter should have recognized that the Lord was simply challenging him to trust him. Then he goes down. How many guys are there? Three. See, that's God. God just talks to us sometimes through silly little things. Have you noticed that? You're thinking, could that be God? Is is God going to work through numbers? Is he going to work through what I think are coincidence? Oh, yeah, if that's what it takes to get your attention and show you he's working. I've had that experience multiple times over the last week. Silly little things that don't seem to really mean anything that when they all add up, they add up. Three times, three people, three times. Well, the messengers from Cornelius, they arrived at Simon's house after Peter had received the vision. I love that. You know, God's timing is so good. He doesn't give him the vision the the day before because he knows he wouldn't have slept. He would have been up all night worrying about, oh, what does this mean? I got to eat stuff that's unclean. He He doesn't give it to him except... That moment when he really needs to hear it, minutes before they show up. He doesn't really have time to figure it all out, but he knows what he's supposed to do. And so they show up. Peter's still wondering about the meaning of the vision that he had just received. The messengers, they find the house and they inquire, is Peter staying here? But they stopped at the gate. How many people stop at your gate? How many people don't get too close? They know you're holy. They, they won't come too near you because after all, you go to church. You don't swear. You don't cuss. You, you're not the kind of person that they are. So when they see you, when they encounter you, they stop at the gate. Now, maybe not physically, but emotionally and mentally and relationally, they stop at the gate. They're not going to go any further because you know what they know? they know that you're uncomfortable with them. It shows on your face. 
It shows by your life and the things you say and the things you do and how you don't choose to spend time with people like that. Now, I'm pointing the finger at you, but listen, it's also me. We have to step outside of what we consider to be acceptable to recognize that God is making people clean. And he may call you to bring that message of salvation to a person that God is making clean. Now, when that happens, you are not going to be comfortable. And you're going to see things. God is going to reveal things to you about you that are going to show you you might actually be a little prejudiced. I don't accuse anyone of being a racist, but you may be uncomfortable around people with different skin color, white or black, or different language groups. You may be uncomfortable with different socioeconomic groups. You may be uncomfortable with people who have a different culture than you have that you don't understand very much. What do you do about that? Well, the first thing we got to do is get past the gate. Because if they stay at the gate, they'll never see your life, they'll never know who you are, and they'll never come to Christ. So, they stopped at the gate. They called out, period! Instead of entering the courtyard, they knew that they weren't welcomed. They knew that the Jews considered it unlawful for them to associate with Gentiles, and you can tell by the fact that the first thing they do is make all kinds of excuses for why they were there. We've come from Cornelius the Centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man. He's respected by all the Jewish people. There's a defensive nature in what this is, the message that they're sharing, what's being said. They're making excuses so that, because they know they're not welcome. Do you see it? Brothers and sisters, say amen. You see it? It's pretty obvious if you look closely. But the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter while, uh, excuse me, spoke to Peter while he was still thinking about the vision that he had just received. The Spirit informed Peter that three men were looking for him, directed Peter to go downstairs and meet with these men, and told him not to have any concerns about traveling with them <laughs> as he had sent them. This is a big moment for Peter. This is like when Joe Nigro asks you to go on a missions trip, and you tell him, "I'll pray about it." And you do, and God says, go? You know that feeling of panic? (laughs) I do. And some of you do too. Or when Pastor Kurt says, hey, listen, pray about getting involved in sports camp. And you say, I'll pray about it. And you go home, and you do. And God says, go. You see, those are very challenging moments for us as Christians because we have to put our faith into action. But we have to get over ourselves, and we're not good at that. None of us are. So, Peter obeyed the Lord. Praise God. That's all God is really asking you to do. Just listen. Just do what he's telling you to do. He went down and said to the man, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come You see, then it says Peter invited the the men into the house to be, what? Wait, I I almost missed that. To be his, wait a minute. Does that word say guests? He invited the men into the house to be his guests. Listen, in the Middle East, a guest is really something. When you show hospitality to someone, they're your guest. You treat them better than if the Pope came to stay with you. 
if you're Catholic. You see, the, the thing is here, they became his guests. I, I just keep going over that word and just uh, guests. And okay, now go back and think of those people we talked about. It. Remember I told you to think about those people that you're uncomfortable with? Remember? You don't want to, but you need to. Go back and think about those people that popped into your head when I said, think of a group of people you're uncomfortable with, make you uncomfortable. All right, great. Guests. Let's put it in a way you understand. Eating at your house, sleeping in your guest room. Anybody uncomfortable yet? I am. I'm sure Peter was uncomfortable, but he obeyed God. He asked these men, why are you here? I think he kind of knew, but at the same time, he, he was hoping it wasn't true. And the men relayed this message from Cornelius and invited Peter to come to Cornelius's house. That's a big step. Having them there is one thing. Having to go there to Caesarea, and man, I can, I can see the sweat beating on Peter's brow. They testified. He's a righteous, God-fearing man, respected by all the Jews. He received a vision of a holy angel. He told him to come. Peter was being beckoned to come, to, to be invited because the angel said so. And the angel had specifically told him to hear what Peter would have to say to him. Peter knows he needs to go. He invited these Gentiles into the house after confirming that they had been sent by the Lord. You know something? I'm sure he's not comfortable. I know it. But he finally understood the meaning of the vision that he had received. It was not, I repeat, not unlawful for Jews to associate with Gentiles or even visit with them or have them as guests. Who told them that? Find me a scripture that tells you that that is true. So much of what we believe to be true isn't especially in spiritual things. God had shown him that he should not call any man or woman impure or unclean, or let's put it in our vernacular, undesirable, unlovable, unwelcomed at the gate. I'm going to ask Pastor Russ to come up to close us out. This is a challenging message, isn't it? Because it reveals our hearts for what they are. Wicked deceitfully wicked, above all things. Who can know it? God knows the heart. He just showed you yours. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to react to that? Hey, listen, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I know this. I know that God is stretching me and asking me to go and be among people I'm uncomfortable with at times. Not to partake in their sinful lifestyles, Not to speak the way they speak necessarily or do the things that they do. But to share the message of salvation with those that may respect God. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. What can we say except that you challenge us to be more like you? And we're not. (coughs) We're so different. You so love the world, we often hate it. The wickedness in this world causes us to lift our hands and cry out for judgment. The wickedness in this world causes you to call your people to reach the wicked world. Change our hearts, Lord. Make us more like you. Make us to be the people that you work not only through but in. 
And Lord God, may we be used by you to reach out to a world that may fear you, that may, that may honor you or know that you exist, but hasn't heard the message of salvation, hasn't seen it, but most of all, hasn't gotten past the gate of our lives. May we open the gate and open our homes and our hearts to all those that you are making clean. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.